0: Well, every December for the last 17 years, our family has engaged in an annual tradition. It's a contest. We try to predict the winners of the college football bowl games. We call it the ABC, the Adams Bowl Championship. This has become a really big deal. In fact, my two daughter-in-laws married my sons just so that they could participate in the ABC. We have a trophy, yep, and you'll notice that the winner's name gets engraved in the plaque on the trophy, we have a green beanie, you know, the master's champ wears a green jacket, we have a green beanie we wear, we have t-shirts, everything that's legit has a t-shirt, we've got two t-shirts, we've got rules, we've got a scoring system, we even have a chancellor to settle disputes. That's me. You know, for most people, December is full of meaningless football. I mean, who cares if San Jose State wins the military bowl? Well, I do. I had San Jose State by 12 points. You know, a few of us put a lot of time, a lot of effort into these predictions. I mean, we study teams and schedules and trends and records. Other contestants, I I won't name them, but other contestants, they sort of base their predictions on team colors. Oh, I like orange more than yellow, so I'll just go with Clemson. Sadly, the two methods sort of work out the same, really. It's not much difference in terms of results. Well, this year it finally happened. For the first time in family history, the Adams Bowl Championship was won by neither a person born in Adams nor even named Adams. This is tragic. My son-in-law, Jonathan Keller, won the celebrated crown. He's also the worn-out father of twins, newborn twins. It all came down to the last game. Kathy picked Notre Dame, John picked Alabama, and John was right. Everyone is now counting down the days until next year when we win back the title from the Keller feller. I said all of that to say this. Revelation chapters 15 and 16 are about bowls. Seven bowls. But these bowls aren't bowl games. There is nothing fun or festive in these bowls. There is no trophy or beanie or t-shirt associated with these bowls. Only peril and pain and punishment. And these bowls are no contest. For God's judgment, His wrath bowls the world over. It's not difficult to pick the losers in these bowls. The people who rebel against Jesus Christ and pledge their allegiance to the beast, these are the losers. But I'm sure you can't point to any winners. I'm certain that a loving God doesn't consider the judgment of sinners to be a win. I'm sure of that. I mean, His victory is our salvation. God grieves over the defiance and the death and the devastation that rattles the earth at its end. If there's a winner in these seven bowls, it's God's righteousness. For in the end, His warnings prove true. His word is verified. Evil does get punished. Sin is a debt that does come due. Creatures are accountable to their Creator. The tenants are responsible to the landlord. These seven bold judgments teach us that God don't play. That His judgments are no game. That there are issues more important to God than good times and your happiness. That a holy God demands righteousness. There is a right and there is a wrong. And God is the arbitrator of both. He expects us to live and to treat each other In the right way, in His way, God expects us to do what's right, which makes these bowls deadly, serious business. In fact, they are the ultimate result of our unrighteousness. Well, chapter 15, you could call, it's sort of the bowl special. It's a preview of these bowl judgments. And then in chapter 16, the lamb goes bowling. John begins, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. There are 21 judgments mentioned in the book of Revelation. We've already seen 14. In chapter 6, seven seals were broken. In chapters 8 and 9, seven trumpets blasted. Now in chapter 16, seven bowls brimming with judgment are poured out upon the earth. There are Bible commentators who try to fit these 21 plagues into sort of a nice chronological order. I'm not so sure. There's probably a lot of overlap here, especially at the end, for the end comes with a flurry. Remember in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew, Jesus said, "...unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved." In other words, the judgments become so severe that it can't last forever. That's what we see here. These bowls cripple the earth to the point where it can no longer sustain life. That's what makes these plagues God's final, final judgments. You know, if you've ever been to a hockey game, you've seen a fright break out between two players. In fact, most people, they go to a hockey fight and hope a game breaks out. But when two hockey players get into a fisticuffs, the first thing they do is pull off their gloves. For when you really want to inflict pain on someone, the padded gloves have to go. Well, in Revelation chapter 15 and 16, these chapters could be titled, When God's Gloves Come Off. From this point onward, God is no longer cushioning His blows. He is going to land a final flurry of combination punches. God is going for the knockout. By chapter 15, God has a rebellious planet on the ropes and seven bowls are what drop it to the canvas. Verse 2. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now, The book of Hebrews reveals a fascinating insight that the Jewish temple was really a small-scale model of God's throne room in heaven. We know this. Hebrews 9 verse 24 states it. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are a copy of the true, but into heaven itself, not now to appear in the presence of God for us. If you want a glimpse of heaven, then examine the temple on earth. And one of the features of Solomon's temple was this bronze laver, this pool down in the bottom corner of the picture there. It was a bowl where the priests tidied up. Well, here in Revelation 15, verse 2, John sees its prototype, its heavenly equivalent. He calls it a sea. I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. John sees a body of water. It's motionless. It looks like glass. And it has this fiery tint as if it's stained with blood. And then he sees those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark. And over the number of His name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Now in the earthly temple, the priests washed in this labor. On earth, cleansing is what's needed. Today, we're washed with the water of God's Word. But in heaven, we are already clean. Thus, these saints stand where once they washed. One day, we'll stand where once we washed. We'll stand on that glassy sea. And our lives will give testimony to God's promises. Here we see these martyrs who've suffered for Christ's sake in the great tribulation. They're standing on the sea. They're standing as a testimony to God's salvation. John sees these people who have the victory over the beast. But you say, wait a minute. Didn't the Antichrist put them all to death because they refused his mark of worship? How can you say they're victorious over the beast when he put them to death? Well, understand this. Victory in the Christian life is sometimes won by escaping tribulation, but at other times it's won by enduring tribulation. God will give the church an escape. He'll rapture us, whereas He'll give the tribulation believers endurance in the face of this suffering. Remember this the next time you're confronted with temptation or trial or fear or doubt. Don't just look for God's escape patch. Did you know He might want to strengthen you and send you through that trial? Rather than get out, He could say, go through. It's only through those difficulties and trials that we find wings we didn't know we had. Through Him, we overcome. You know, it amazes me that on the eve of His final judgments, God gives earth a glimpse of heaven. And He holds up these victorious saints as proof of His willingness to save It's as if God is issuing the world a last, last call. Notice verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb sang. Of course, you can check out the lyrics to Moses' song in Exodus chapter 15. It was probably a top 40 hit in his day, probably reached number one. Great song. Verses 3 and 4 provide the lyrics of the Lamb. But before we look at these lyrics, I need to clear up some confusion here about music in heaven. Notice these musicians are on the glassy sea with what in their hands? With harps of God. And I know what you're thinking. No. Please tell me no. Please, Sandy, don't tell me. We're going to have to listen to harps in heaven. I mean, there are folks, including myself, who can't bear the thought of this stereotype being true. That we'll be sitting around on white little fluffy clouds, listening to the strumming of boring harps all day. That's torture, man, not heaven! Don't worry. Settle down. did a little research this past week. There are benefits to thorough Bible study. According to the Vines Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, The Greek term kithara, here translated harps, can also be rendered. Guitar! That's right. Breathe easy, my friends. The guys on the glassy sea, man, they're jamming with the lamb on their electric guitars. They got their Les Pauls and their Stratocasters going. Jesus is the rock that doesn't roll. There's got to be rock and roll in heaven. I will say this, everybody in heaven is harping on Jesus. You better believe it. He's all that heaven talks about. Everyone in heaven is full of praise and adoration and love for the lion who is a lamb. And you know what? They have no idea why we are so silent. And here's what they sing. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are worthy. Jesus is King. He's King of the saints. He's King of the jungle. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. Now God is about to pour out these scalding hot bowls of judgment. We're going to read later that wicked men respond with blasphemy. But remember those in heaven, they praise the Lamb for these same judgments. They say His ways are true and just. He alone is holy. Heaven praises what the world is about to resent. It's the same response you see in a courtroom. When the judge walks into a courtroom, what... The guilty person over here, he starts to squirm, doesn't he? He resents that judge already. Whereas the victim, he's over here, he's happy to see the judge. Justice is about to be meted out. That's what's going to happen in the last days in the midst of these judgments. Verse 5 tells us, After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen. And having their chests girded with golden bands. These angels are now wearing priestly garb. And then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. These seven bowls are sloshing over with red hot wrath. They're obviously microwavable. They've been heated to a boil. It's judgment day, man. God's gloves are coming off. And notice the fireworks in heaven. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Heaven chokes on the smoke of God's glory. That excellent Bible commentary entitled chapter by chapter, it says of this verse, The temple in heaven is filled with smoke as the earth below is about to be smoked. I couldn't have said it any better myself. Get ready for these seven bowls to be dumped out on the earth. They aren't bowl games. This is serious business. Chapter 16 is lights out for this wicked world. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. And so the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worship his image. Now what this mark will be, we really don't know. Is it a microchip planted under the skin? Is it some kind of a laser tattoo? Well, we don't know the form it'll take. But I have read recently that if a lithium battery planted under your skin ever broke, the lithium would cause a severe, a vile kind of sore. These abscesses could somehow be related to the mark that these people have accepted into their right hand or into their forehead. You know, at one time, the legions who worshipped this beast, they were proud of this mark. They loved and they worshipped their supposed Savior. But now their mark of allegiance has turned into this pustuous, cankerous, festering sore of these foul and loathsome lesions. Some people have associated them with nuclear radiation. You know, when the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, people who didn't die in the blast were tortured from the radiation burns. John Hershey in his book, Hiroshima, paints a vivid picture of the survivors. He says, faces were wholly burned, eye sockets were hollow, fluid from melted eyes, ran down cheeks, Mouths were mere swollen, pus-covered wounds. The victims here seem to have those same symptoms. They seem to have running sores, and they end up dying slow, painful, torturous deaths. Another possibility, these sores could be a mass outbreak of melanoma, skin cancer caused by the overexposure to solar radiation. We're going to see when the fourth bowl is poured out, That the sun has given power to scorch human beings. Even SPF 100 sunblock is not going to help you. Watch out now. Another bowl is emptied in verse 3. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea. And it became blood as of a dead man. And every living creature in the sea died. Now notice these angels, they've got good aim. They always hit their targets. This first angel had the worshipers of the beast in his crosshairs whereas the second angel targets the sea. And this is an environmental disaster of unparalleled proportion. This is Greenpeace's worst nightmare. I mean it makes the Gulf Coast oil spill look like baby's drool. The oceans, the earth's oceans are suddenly poisoned. They turn toxic. Fish and sea, and seals and plankton and Mammals, they die. The world launches a Save the Whales campaign, but to no avail. Waters that teem with life, now suddenly everything in them dies. No more sushi! In Revelation 8 verse 8, when the second trumpet blasts were told, something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. You know, there we discuss the possibility of the earth being impacted by a meteorite, by a comet. You know, the mineral composition of an object from outer space would be high in iron. And thus it could be that the iron interjected into the oceans is what turns the waters to blood red. And again, this possibility was in this past week's news. Did you see the headline? Did you hear where a 1,000-foot-wide asteroid named Apophis sailed past our planet? It was in this past week's headlines. If it had struck the Earth, the asteroid would have generated a blast equivalent to 500 megatons of TNT. That's no small firecracker. Well, this time there was no danger, but scientists are tracking the trajectory of this asteroid. And they say that in 2029, it'll make a much closer flyby inside the orbits of our communication satellites. That's pretty close. And it's just one of thousands of these near-Earth objects that are keeping astronomers on their toes these days. This could well be one of the things that God uses to bring these judgments. There are other possibilities though. Red tide is a phenomenon caused by a saltwater parasite. It turns the ocean red and it kills all the fish. Ironically, the organism that causes it goes by the nickname, the sail from hell. And of course, God might not use a meteorite or a parasite. You know, God could just say, let there be blood, and there would be blood. When you're God, you do whatever you want. The possible doomsday scenarios are endless. How it happens is conjecture. That it happens, it's certainty. The Bible tells us so. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Now this is why these bold judgments have to occur within a few days of Jesus' return. I mean, humans can live a maximum of ten days without water. If you throw in all the bottled waters and the Coca-Cola's still around, maybe we're sustained for a few more weeks. But at least, you know, you know by this point, without any fresh water. I mean, we've got to be within a month or so of the Lord's soon return or, or people wouldn't survive. Now, I know what some of you are thinking at this point. You're thinking, wow, God is so loving. He's been so kind and gracious and merciful to me. I didn't think God is capable of such terrible judgments. And that's why the third angel offers an explanation for the bowl that he pours out. John writes, And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord. The one who is, and who was, and who is to be. Because you have judged these things. You've been right in doing this, Lord. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. And you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. See, in the wake of this suffering, our tendency is to forget what the world did to deserve this punishment. Yet God doesn't forget This Christ rejecting world that we live in has innocent blood on its hands. Did you know since 1980, 1.3 billion, 1.3 billion unborn innocent children have been aborted? That would be, if those people were alive, that would be 16% of our population. That means that for every five people that you meet today, every five people sitting in this room, there's one person that's missing that should be here. This world has blood on its hands. And abortion is just one cause of blood on this world's hands. Think of the wars and the genocide and the vice and the hatred. It all cries out for God's vengeance. Recall the Jews who stood before Pilate and cried out for God's only Son to be crucified. They shouted those ominous words, His blood be on us and on our children. Did they have any idea what they were asking? You know, we get squeamish in the face of judgment, but not God. His judgments are just and true. You are righteous, O Lord, in all you do. God doles out, their just due. And heaven isn't finished defending God's righteous wrath. In verse 7, John writes, And I heard another, maybe another angel, from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Don't make the mistake of seeing just one side of God's heart. Yes, He is kind and benevolent. Yes, He is merciful and gracious. But His mercy comes at a steep price. Understand God created this world and us in good faith. I mean, He's a good God and He loves us. Why would He expect anything other from us than our complete compliance? But That's not what happened, is it? Adam and Eve sinned. Then you and I sinned. We defied the Creator's authority. What is God to do? Just ignore it? Just let it slide? Just let the puny little human mud daubers run around shaking their fist in God's face? Is that what He should do? If God were so nonchalant, nobody would respect Him. God has to cast down those who rise up against Him. There would have been no thought of mercy, only justice, unless Jesus hadn't stepped in between us and God. God had decreed that the wages of sin is death. This is the price for God's mercy. Someone had to die for us. And Jesus volunteered. Jesus assumes our penalty. He assages or eases God's wrath. God focused all that we deserved on Jesus. Legally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Did you know that when God sees the child molester... Or when God looks down and he sees a wife beater or a serial killer or a pimp or a rapist, do you know he gets angry? He gets really, really angry? What? How could we respect him if he didn't? And yet the Bible tells us that God has stored up all of that righteous wrath. He stored it all up for one strategic moment at the cross. He poured out all of his feelings of disgust on his only son, Jesus. The hammer intended for sinners fell on Jesus. And for one reason, so that God could now treat mankind with mercy and, with not, judge, and not judgment. And this is why Paul says, today is the day of salvation. The day is coming for judgment, but today salvation is accessible. Today mercy is available because of what Jesus has done for us. But if you reject Jesus, if you act as if this mercy that God's shown us is no big deal, and you put yourself you know, in a rebellious position against God, then don't make any excuses when God's judgment falls on you. If you're that foolish and that defiant to reject God's mercy and put yourself back under God's judgment, well then, friend, you deserve what you get. But you can't fault God. Not at all. For as the angel from the altar cries out, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Verse 8, Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. Al Gore's right. Global warming will become a problem. But this isn't man-made. Greenhouse gases are not the cause here. This is the judgment of God. Say a meteorite does rip through the ozone and leaves a hole. The sun could blow like a torch and scorch the earth like a prairie fire. One thing's for sure, God's wrath is heating up here. Verse 9 And men were scorched with great heat. And you'd think they would repent, wouldn't you? You'd think that by this point men would be crying out to God for mercy. Instead, they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give Him glory. God obviously has the power to stop these plagues. And yet they're in complete defiance to His will. Even in the face of judgment, this world shakes its fist in God's face and hurls insults at Him. How arrogant. And then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Now again, when it comes to God's judgments, these angels, they're sharpshooters. They hit their target. There's not a lot of collateral damage here. God is ordering precision strikes against deliberate targets, and this angel has the beast in his scope. The rebellion is now concentrated around his throne, and that's where this next plague is aimed. The fifth bowl is poured out on the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. Now it's literally lights out on planet Earth. Thick darkness engulfs everything. It's so dark that the sufferers can't perceive beyond their own blisters and sores. And so they sit and they sulk and they flail about in pain. And verse 10 describes their favorite pastime. They gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. This seems unfathomable. How could you not repent? How could you not tap out at this point? And yield and give up to God. How could you not? How could you still be defiant against God? Well, it's interesting. Our passage tonight, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, provides us an answer to that question. Paul writes these words The coming of the lawless one, or this Antichrist, this beast, is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion, that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This Antichrist, he's going to have some serious swag. He's going to capture people's allegiance. He's going to be persuasive to the point of working miracles. Paul calls them lying wonders. And to execute His judgment in an expeditious manner, God is going to seal their rebellion by causing, casting upon them a strong delusion. They end up believing not just a lie, but Paul calls it the lie. This is what happened at the Tower of Babel. You Remember the story. The world came under the sway of a charismatic leader, Nimrod was the man who convinced the world that God was the bad guy and that he was the good guy. Rather than encourage folks to be accountable for their sin, Nimrod taught them to blame God for the consequences of their sin. Big bad God! He was the one responsible for this global flood that had destroyed the world. Oh, Nimrod would now protect them from God. God's the bad guy. He's the good guy. I believe this is the lie. I believe this is the strong delusion that hardens the rebellion, that causes mankind to ignore the obvious and follow the beast. It's the age-old lie. You remember when Satan tempted Eve, the very first temptation, he convinced her that God was trying to stunt her growth, hold her back. He said, oh, if you eat this fruit, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. Follow me. This is the path to enlightenment. This is the lie. That for some reason God is holding you back. That if you just shake off God's shackles, and if you follow yourself or follow someone else, then you can achieve enlightenment. This is the lie, the lie, that will harden the hardness of man in the end. And don't you see it today? You could be bl- you're blind if you don't see it. This is the spirit of our day. Today, Christianity is being depicted as this repressive, intolerant religion. Christianity's the bad guy. It's what's responsible for the last 2,000 years of war and hatred and bigotry and prejudice. Oh, it's a religion that manipulates through guilt and it fosters hate. And it represses individual freedom. You need to shake off this Christianity. In fact, if you believe in something as Neanderthal and archaic as biblical Christianity... My, it should disqualify you from praying at the president's inauguration. The lie Satan told Eve is the lie of these last days. That God wants to hold you back. Oh, just open your eyes. Find the God that's within. Follow your heart. Do your own thing. Shed the shackles of Christianity and follow a new Savior. And all that's left now for Satan is to introduce the beast. Verse 12, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And from this point on, the stage is being set for the final battle. We call it the Battle of Armageddon. It's the clash between the armies of this world and the army of Jesus Christ. And one of the major players in this battle to end all battles are the kings of the east. Now Daniel 11 is another prophecy you can read that sees this same event. For when the Antichrist invades Israel, he'll be attacked by Syria from the north and Egypt from the south, but to no avail. In fact, the only hindrance to his plans is is news of armies approaching from the east. Is this the Chinese? Is this a confederacy of nations? We're not told. All we're told is how they reach the battlefield. They march to the plain of Megiddo through a dried up riverbed. The Euphrates River. Traditionally, the Euphrates is the boundary between east and west. It's 1,800 miles long. It places it's about two-thirds of a mile wide, 30 feet deep. This great riverbed will one day be the highway to hell. Here's the road that these eastern armies will take to Armageddon. It's interesting that in 1990, Turkey finished a dam whereby now they can shut off the headwaters that fill up the Euphrates. The Atar Turk dam has diminished the water level in the Euphrates by a third. It's caused tremendous tension between... Turkey's downstream neighbors, Syria and Iraq and Turkey itself. This dam may be the thing that one day these kings of the east use as their transport. Again, as we mentioned last week, everything in this section now is leading up to the final battle of Armageddon. And in verse 13, John writes, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And this is pretty gross. Frogs coming out of your mouth. I read that and I think, that, man, that makes you want to croak. That's gross. <laughs> now, now, some of you single ladies, pay attention here. Some of you single ladies, because you've been kissing a lot of frogs thinking that you'll one day find your prince. Did you know you could just as easily find a demon? What well, happened to me? Well, we won't get into that. But. You know, a better way to find a husband, I think, would be just to pray. And trust God to bring you one. It said of these frogs, For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. These three demons, they deceive and they coax the nations to this final showdown. Jesus speaks in verse 15. It's red letters in my Bible. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew, Har-Mageddon, which literally means the mountain of Megiddo. Megiddo is the ancient valley that's set in the southern boundary of the Jezreel Valley. This has been the site of numerous battles down through the ages. Whenever I go to Israel, I love to go to the observation deck there and look out as far as the eye can see across this valley. This is where Deborah and Barak defeated the Canaanites and where Gideon defeated the Midianites. This is also where Saul died at the hands of the Philistines. This is where the British under General Allenby defeated the Turks in World War I. This valley is presently a huge expanse of farmland, with one exception, and you can kind of see it in the picture there. There is now an Israeli Air Force base in the middle of the valley. Planes from Megiddo can now fly sorties to Syria and to Iran. When Napoleon Bonaparte saw the plain of Megiddo, he made this remark, All the armies of the world could maneuver for battle there, and one day soon they will. Actually, the term battle of Armageddon is a misnomer. Megiddo simply serves as the staging area for these armies of the world as they move against Jerusalem. The final conflict is really the battle of Jerusalem. And we'll talk about it in two weeks in Revelation chapter 19. well, Verse 17, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And again, notice the target is specific. It's the air. Remember, who in the Bible gets referred to as the prince of the power of the air? Ephesians 2 verse 2 coins the term as the title of Satan. This is why Satan has such an influence on music today, and media, and airwaves, and even Wi-Fi. He spreads so much of his filth through the air. And apparently this seventh and final bold judgment is aimed at Satan himself and his vast domain God is going to defeat the devil at the pinnacle of His power in the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. Literally, it is finished. The wording harkens back to Christ's words upon the cross. On the cross, Jesus died to redeem creation. He bought it back to God. But here He takes possession of what He's purchased. With this final bold judgment, Jesus evicts the squatters. He secures for Himself what He purchased on the cross. Verse 18, And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. This quake blows up the Richter scale. Finally, the big one hits. And it's not in Los Angeles. That's not the epicenter. It's in the Middle East. Verse 19, And now the great city was divided into three parts. The great city is probably Jerusalem. Today, Jerusalem is a divided city. East Jerusalem is Arab. West Jerusalem is Jewish. But you think it's divided now. Here, God splits it into three. But this earthquake also has, not only impacts Israel, it it has a ripple effect all across the globe. It says, and the cities of the nations fail. Obviously, this is a geological event that's enormous. It impacts cities all around the world. Imagine New York and London and Rome and Beijing and Moscow and Tokyo. All these cities now in ruins. You know, it's interesting that in all of the ancient calendars, they all operated on 12 30-day months. It was a symmetrical pattern. It was a total of 360 days a year. And yet today's solar calendar is asymmetrical. Today, the year is 365 and a quarter days. Why why the off? Why did it get off? How did it get off? How did the earth's axis tip? What knocked us off our axis? Well, geologists speculate that in earth's past, we took a direct hit from some cosmic projectile. A comet or a meteor or an asteroid knocked the planet off its hinges. And if it happened before, it can certainly happen again seems that that's what the Bible's describing here. But John mentions the impact of this strike on one other city. And the great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of His wrath. God remembers who He's going to judge. God doesn't forget. God remembers who's to drink of the cup of the fierceness of His wrath. And here He pinpoints Babylon. You know this was always Satan's city Babylon you know the earth the story of the bible Jerusalem is God's capital on earth whereas Babylon is the capital of Satan and here Babylon is made to gulp down a cup of God's wrath she tastes his judgment verse 20 and then every island fled away wow every island fled away you know the heat from the fourth bowl if it melted the solar ice cap the polar ice caps Did you know scientists say that if that happened, if the ice caps melted, the sea level would instantly rise 200 feet all across the globe? Today's coastal cities would all disappear. And the mountains were not found. You know, when these continental plates shift, expect tidal waves and tsunamis. All the earth's topography is getting a radical facelift. Surveyors, beware, all the topo maps are going to be wrong one day. Verse 21, And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Now a talent was an ancient Hebrew measurement. It was the equivalent of about 100 pounds. Think 100-pound hailstones. When my brother lived in Dallas, he complained about the hail the size of golf balls that would always dent his pickup truck. But imagine hailstones the size of beach balls or bigger. And there are all kinds of theories as to what phenomena might cause these kinds of hailstones. But again, don't miss the obvious. Remember the Old Testament penalty for blasphemy. What was it? It was stoning. It was stoning. What do you have here? All of a sudden now, heaven is the one that's throwing the rocks. This vile and wicked world has blasphemed God, has made a mockery of God. You think God is just going to let it slide by and not take action? You're dreaming. God is going to respond with a punishment that befits the crime. He is going to pummel this wicked world with hailstones. And yet despite it all, this is the amazing thing, Men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hell, since that plague was exceedingly great. To the very end, nobody gets the message. Nobody gets the point. The world's rejection is proof of the hardness of their hearts. Rather than repent, they only stiffen their necks and dig in their heels and continue in this die-hard rebellion. Man, I hope you get the point. I hope we get the point. Understand this. You are not God. Did you know that? You are not God. You are a creature made in God's image. And you are accountable to Him. You are not free to just do as you please and follow your own heart. This is not the path to enlightenment. This is the path to judgment and darkness and ignorance. And Revelation 16 teaches us that the world is going to follow its heart straight to hell. I'm sure you don't want to go to hell. But if the path you're on is headed there and you stay on that path, then don't be surprised if that's where you end up. Repent while you can. God's bowls are not games. God don't play. These bowls are serious business. Don't you get bowled over. Turn your heart to Jesus.